When I was a kid, my dad made a few things clear. His interest in aliens and his belief in the power of funk music. Parliament Funkadelic and Bootsy Collins bobbleheads lined his desks and workspaces in the home that I grew up in. It's just the beat, you know, it's, 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 it's the groove. It, it's just, it just gets in you. It's again, you know, it's, I always thought of the Parliament Funkadelic thing as kind of goofy fun. In their case, maybe drug-fueled goofy fun. Just kind of, you know, it's a different narrative, right? Yeah, I like the idea of aliens, right? Um, what do you like about them? They're not human, right? Um, I want the aliens to take me, you know. <laughs> I mean, I think it's, you know, it's also kind of maybe why I like, you know, sci-fi action movies and stuff like that. Sometimes I think that just a different uh, narrative from the common narrative, you know, go to work, where's humanity going? Um, right now things seem very dark, so that narrative is particularly appealing. This desire to dream of a better world than the one that we exist in, it's something that you see throughout the history of Black culture. You might have heard of it defined as Afrofuturism, but I also just think it's an innate part of Black living. You see, the funk legend and James Brown prodigy, George Clinton, he imagined worlds far outside of this one, where pimps rode spaceships as if they were Cadillacs in what was known as the Mothership Connection. Home of the extraterrestrial brothers, dealers of funky music, P-Funk, Uncut Funk, The Bomb. And a 1970s sci-fi film shows Sun Ra touching down in Oakland to spread word of his dreams of sending Black people to other planets to create a new future for our race. And Oracle, prophet, and writer Octavia Butler, growing up in Pasadena, she knew that she would be a writer someday. Someone who would write books that tell the future of our present. Black activists, artists, and advocates, Black people have always had their eye on the future and dared to imagine worlds outside of the spheres that we currently live in. We're always daring to dream big and dream bad. Evangeline Montgomery was one of those people who envisioned a better world where Black art was known and celebrated. And she constantly worked to make it possible. Welcome back to season seven of Raw Material, Visions of Black Futurity. I'm your host, Babette Thomas. In the last episode, I was telling you a story of a woman named Evangeline E.J. Montgomery. What's the purpose of having this exhibit? Well, just to show that black artists do exist. We want our own people to know that we are here. She was an artist, a curator, and a creator of Black artistic spaces in the Bay Area during the late 60s and early 70s. But to understand who EJ was at the height of her career as an art consultant, curator, and cultural worker, we have to look back at where she came from. EJ was born in New York City in 1930. She grew up as an adopted only child on the East Coast, and being the daughter of a Baptist minister, she moved all around growing up. 
EJ went to high school in New York City, and when she was 14, she got her first oil painting set and immediately found her love of art. After graduating from high school, she got married and started working as an artist. She found a job painting faces on dolls and religious statues. And then in 1955, EJ and her husband decided to move to Los Angeles. EJ would later say that moving to California, she found love for a place for the first time. Think about the resources, courage, and the commitment to dreaming it takes to go venture thousands of miles to a new place in hopes of pursuing your passion. It means having an image of the kind of life you want to live in your head and willing it into existence, dreaming of your most ideal future and holding onto it tightly. I think this impulse to venture out on your own, it's something that probably a lot of Black folks can relate to. Oftentimes, these choices aren't really choices at all. They're imperative. The history of Black people in America is one of fleeing violence and wanting to create a better future for your children. It's what brought my family here to the Bay during the Great Migration of the 1940s. My grandparents left their lives in Tennessee, Oklahoma, and Louisiana in hopes of finding better jobs and better lives in the post-war Bay Area. It's an impulse shared amongst migrants who face violence at our world's fabricated borders. And it's also a particularly queer feeling, moving to new places to create our own chosen families. I guess I wonder what it really means to set out on your own, holding on strongly to a certain vision of the future. What it really means to dream of something else. When EJ got to LA, she enrolled in Los Angeles City College and started making jewelry professionally. While she was there, she met a dear friend and collaborator, a Black woman painter, artist, and curator named Ruth Waddy. Ruth had founded a Black artist advocacy group called Arts West Associated. It's the organization that would inspire EJ to later found Arts West Associated North in San Francisco. Like the Bay Area, LA had its own burgeoning Black art scene during the late 1960s. There were artists like Betty Saar and Sanganangudi, artists whose parents had come during the Great Migration or who had even migrated from the South themselves. The kind of work EJ would go on to do in the Bay, garnering resources for Black artists, Ruth was doing in LA. But Ruth had worked lots of odd jobs in Los Angeles before finding her way to art. At one point, she was a riveter for an aircraft corporation. And later, she begins working as an intake clerk at LA County Hospital with a man named Noah Purifoy. And got a job at the county hospital where I worked for two or three years. Born in 1917, Noah had grown up in Snow Hill, Alabama. He got his degrees in teaching and social work on the East Coast before moving to Los Angeles in 1950 to take this job at the hospital. 
Noah had an interest in industrial design. He later became the first black student to enroll at Schwinnard Arts Institute, which is CalArts today. His life was a constant balance between being a social worker and being an artist. And like Ruth and EJ, Noah was a builder who cared deeply about black people. And I think we might be able to learn a few things from him for building our own black art futures. Noah had a really big dream. He wanted to use art to solve social problems, specifically the ones that black communities faced in South Central Los Angeles. He saw art as a tool to help people. Here he is in an oral history interview from 1990. Oh, I don't, I don't harbor problems. I find solutions. Um, that's what I'm good at. Um, you see, I was looking for a vehicle upon which I could find ways to use art as a tool to change people with. In 1964, Noah co-founded the Watts Tower Art Center, a center built around artist Simon Rodia's famous towers in Watts, Los Angeles. He created the center as a place where black kids in Watts could come to make art as a form of learning. He said he would often have to carry the kids home because they never wanted to leave. I actually had a strong affinity for blacks and I wanted to experience us at the level where we lived at. I wanted to experience what it's like to be poor. I could have been not poor, but uh, it was self-imposed poverty. I wanted to know what it was like. Uh, and I wanted to experience all the ins and outs of poverty so that I could report it as it was. In case you didn't catch that, Noah said, I wanted to experience what it's like to be poor. During this period of self-imposed poverty, Noah still maintained his studio practice. After the Watts riots in 1965, a six-day uprising in the mostly black neighborhood of Watts, Noah went out and collected the debris from the streets. He put on an exhibition featuring works created from these materials. It was called 66 Signs of Neon, and it really launched his career. Noah loved the idea of junk and everyday objects. He liked the aura they possessed and also the way it brought attention to our culture of materialism. He thought that these were objects that the people of Watts could relate to. In Watts, it was extremely accessible. Uh, number two, it relates to, to, uh, to, to poor people. Wherever there are poor people, there's, there's piles of junk. People bring the junk there. Uh, in Watts, uh, uh, there was a mound of scrap metal all over the place. And uh, defunct foundries where there was piles of metal and junk. Uh, uh, and and, uh, and garbage day uh, was a time when 
um, uh, people put the trash out, but it was often not picked up, and so it stayed there for weeks. Uh, I can think to do something with it, turn it into something else. For years, Noah continued making art as an assemblage artist and sculptor. But around 1976 or 77, he gave up. Because I had these things inside of me ready to be expressed, mm -hmm. but I didn't have a media through which to express them. I tried this and that didn't work. Mm -hmm. It didn't communicate to the people my deep feelings. Mm -hmm. And so I was almost always at a loss. His art wasn't accomplishing the social change that he had hoped for. So instead, he took his background in social work and joined the California Arts Council. He continued to work tirelessly to create channels to implement art as a form of healing, learning, and therapy. He created programs for black kids in the central city and instituted art programs in California prisons. He did this for about 10 years, through the late 80s. But living in L.A., it was getting expensive. And in a tale that's all too familiar to Black folks in California, he was priced out. So at age 72, in 1989, Noah packed up his entire life. He sold some of his work to raise some money, and he left Los Angeles. He headed east towards the desert in Joshua Tree, where he would build out his studio on two acres of land. Once he was there, he started working on his outdoor museum, the thing he worked on up until his death in 2004. In May of last year, I set out to Joshua Tree with my best friend. At the time, I didn't have any sense of who Noah was or what he did. We got to Noah's museum at sunset. And all I knew is that we were alone in the desert and it was so quiet. Hey bestie, so I have a question for you. And the question is, do you remember when we went to Joshua Tree and we went to the Noah Purifoy Museum and we kind of each went on our own little journey throughout the outdoor museum and you started texting me because you were getting a little spooked and I was wondering if you remember kind of why. Okay, so I did feel spooked, um, mostly because there were no walls, there was nothing to delineate the difference between the exhibition and like the desert and so I feel like the, a constant theme in that trip for me was like oh shit we really are in the middle of nowhere there is no signage I could have no cell service I don't know where I am we were surrounded by these objects made from scraps and found materials these objects that to me felt like different models for spaceships tall rectangular boxes made out of silver tin with a colorful cone on top a white blown out structure with white wood and a wreath of old toilets. It felt like these objects could have been different test models for George Clinton's mothership. And it's like, oh shit, is this Area 51? <laughs> like, where are we? 
It was a museum unlike anything I had ever seen before. These structures outside, out in the open, slowly being worn away by the elements. The museum is free to anybody, any time of the day. It is completely uninhibited. There are no museum guards or barriers to stand behind to view these objects. Now, I have to be honest, Joshua Tree is somewhat of a white tourist destination, and land art is a movement largely dominated by white men. So when I came to this museum, I was thinking that it was made by a white man, which is why I was so surprised that it felt so funky. But when I got back to my car, I looked up his name, Noah Purifoy. I started to recognize it from the Watts Towers that I had visited when I was a kid. Noah was black. He was black. Driving away from this museum, I knew I wanted to know more about Noah and knew that I would need to come back once I did. I had gone to Noah's museum because his work had actually supported a future that not even he could have imagined. We're generally, you know, kind of cynical about ideas around utopia, like, oh, they never work, it's not possible. But, you know, there have been instances where people have managed to build communal, like, intentional communities that were really successful, like the Shakers, like Alice Coltrane's ashram, like um, uh, the Watts Towers. That's Colleen Smith. She's a worldly renowned artist and videographer. And last year, she had a video work on view at the seventh floor of SF MoMA called Sojourner. Sojourner is a film um, in which I visit several different sites in the United States uh, where I believe acts of radical generosity and community building occurred. And one of those sites of radical generosity that she visits is Noah's museum. But in sort of like speculating and projecting about what, what the future could look like, it made sense to restage that photograph at, at the out, outdoor museum in Joshua Tree in, inside of one of um, uh, Noah Purifoy's sculptures. The premise of the video is to recreate an image taken of these black men and boys posing at the Watts Tower Art Center in 1965, the center that Noah created. These photos were taken by a man named Billy Ray, a Life magazine photographer who was sent to report on the aftermath of the Watts uprisings in 1965. This picture kind of flies in the face of what he was there to see. Like he was told to see one thing, which is like angry black people who have burned down the neighborhood, but then what he ends up actually experiencing and, and picturing and, and, and making images of in a collaborative way with the residents are these sort of like, like glamorous, like languid, like leisure shots of young men listening to the radio and hanging out in the Watts Towers. 
Colleen says for a number of reasons, shooting the recreation of this picture at the towers didn't work out. But she says it's in her time hanging around the Watts Towers that the themes of her film really started to come together. Uh, I sort of took my my 16 millimeter camera down to the Watts Towers and just filmed it just as a way of looking at it. And that's kind of what I then started to do with all the sites is just instead of using video to record, I used 16 millimeter because it made me look more slowly and more intentionally. And then um, you start to hear voices of uh, women. Um, I have like my friends reading these um, texts from Alice Coltrane, um, the um, wife of John Coltrane, who was an amazing musician, and then became spiritually transcended and started her own ashram and had her own students and composed like um, books and books of spiritual music. It is God who has given us mantras that we can say these holy words and get inspiration from them. Even when we think of the greatness of how Lord teaches wisdom, knowledge, and bliss, we also think of the greatness of God. We think of the great- Rebecca Cox Jackson, who was a black woman, who was also a shaker, and she started the, the first and only shaker community that was in a city center. Um, and um, this other more contemporary text um, written in 1977, the Kambahi River Collective, and they sort of list historically and culturally all the different ways that black women are kind of routinely marginalized and dismissed, um, and that basically the only people who are going to save us are us. Colleen decided to recreate the photo instead at Noah's Museum, with feminine presenting people instead of men. In this video, these gorgeous black and brown people are roaming through Noah's museum. When I saw this work, I was in absolute awe. It had everything to do with like the desert and the, the magic that's just out there for you. You know what I mean? And just the, the assembly of these 12, it, it 12 women and their kind of unicorn-like gorgeousness um, in this unbelievably serene and... Um, um, deceptively fertile uh, landscape. You know, people talk about that there's nothing in the desert, but it's like full of life. Um, and with the sun rising and, and sort of like trying to trying to connect all of these different historical points together through the, the desert itself, through Noah Purifoy, through uh, Al- um, Alice Coltrane's conversation with God, like all these things. For me in that moment, they kind of come together. Yeah. With speeches from Alice Coltrane, Rebecca Cox Jackson, and the Kambahi River Collective, it feels as if these women are trying to tune into the frequencies of their ancestors, people who had tried to build their own utopias. It is possible to build a better world. It's possible to be generous, and um, it's possible to build something that is no longer good for yourself, but for others. It's just possible to make a better world. We just people do it all the time. On my trip back to the museum in late November, six months later, I think I was looking for Noah. 
when I was in L.A. as an artist, I, there was a lot of comings and goings. So every little noise I hear, as you know, most artists are extremely sensitive to noise because they spend quiet times in their head. All the time it's quiet in their heads. Here in the desert, uh, the rabbits, the birds, the scorpions, the lizards all run quiet. You can see them for long distances, but you can't hear them. It's quiet and pleasant, and 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 you don't encounter any hardly any cars on the on the road. And some roads are so infrequently used they don't even have center line demarkers. I kind of felt like the women in Colleen Smith's video, pulling out my antenna on a transistor radio, calling the ancestors. Okay, so I'm at the kind of entrance of the museum. I'm passing by old washing machines and old TVs. There are lots of old TVs. There are piles and piles of old TVs and old appliances and chairs and fans and things that like might look like trash. I'm walking by another very spaceship-like structure and I wonder if Noah would have been a fan of Parliament Funkadelic because so many of his structures just look like models for spaceships. And I wonder where he would have gotten all of these toilets and all of these materials, where he would have found all of these materials. Well, it's quite different here when it comes to finding material. Everything here is recycled. They have a swap meet every Saturday and Sunday in Yucca Valley. And you, you'd be amazed at the stuff that, that uh, is exchanged there because it's stuff that people in Los Angeles throw away. They recycle here, resell, because everyone is in a state of, of, of developing something here. It's a pioneer country. You can really feel the specialness of this space, and I think Part of that specialness is in not being watched, but instead this feeling kind of like part of a part of the landscape. There are little gusts of wind that kind of feel like they're part of the experience. My feet walking and creating rhythm feel like part of the experience. These cacti feel like they're part of the art. There's this piece here called Earth Piece that was built in 1999, um, which apparently is what inspired Noah to come out to the desert in the first place. And it's kind of this like big trench with this bridge over top of it and there's a panel that says you can't walk into it right now because of the ways that the desert 
is kind of reclaiming it. Like the way that the earth is kind of collapsing the piece onto itself. Um, so again, it, it gets me thinking about land and landscape as an active part of the museum and of the works. In many ways, this trip to Noah's museum, it felt like a sort of spiritual experience. I wanted to be alone the ways that Noah had been alone, almost like a type of pilgrimage. In Funk, former Parliament Funkadelic member Bootsy Collins often talks about the idea of the one. It's the fact that funk usually falls on the one beat. It's a style pioneered by James Brown. Bootsy and therefore my dad are always talking about the power of the one. The one, right? The one. He talks about the one. And it's kind of a play on things, right? Um, the power of the one. Bootsy's a little religious, right? Uh, he can, you know, so he can talk about the one as being uh, the spiritual side of thing. But then the one is the beat, you know, you, you always keep it on the one. So you go boom. And you hit on the one, one. Put it back to the one, one right? It's, it's grounds you, know? you. It's that heart. And then you would try to fit your different notes, what you felt in between that, like. <laughs> but oneness can also imply a certain aloneness, peace, wholeness, and inclusion with the universe. It's a spiritual undertone Bootsy hints at when he's talking about the one. These are ideas brought up by Freud, Heidegger, and other philosophers that Noah read. And Noah was constantly infusing this philosophy and spirituality into his art. The impetus to, to want to interrelate them, to become one. So during the height of my art years, I also experienced something extremely profound in that um, I had these oceanic experiences. I'm sorry, what kind of experiences? Oceanic experiences. Okay. Are you familiar with that? No, not at all. Okay. Well, I started out by levitating. Lying on the floor mm -hmm. in the morning, and it appeared that my body was off the floor. Okay. So I I could lie there for hours on end, and, and the time passed without my knowledge. Okay. Sometimes I look up and I've been there four hours, mm -hmm. levitating. Is this something you knew you could do, or did it just happen? Well, it was interrelated with the mind-body thing and art. All that was interrelated with itself, with okay. each other. Okay. Uh, with my study of existentialism and whatnot, okay. it brought us about. Okay. Do you mind if I ask you a couple questions? I'm, um... I'm doing a radio piece about the museum. Okay. What's your name? Kelsey. Kelsey, nice to meet you. I'm Babette. Nice to meet you. Um, could you describe the kind of like structure that we're in right now? So it's a re, like imagine carousel and inside there's all these like old tech typewriters and computers deconstructed. It's a uh, trippy, I don't know. <laughs> it's trippy, right? 
Yeah. So you know about No Purefoy. You know who he is. Yeah. It's just really, um, it's fascinating to see how his brain worked and like the different stories that these inanimate objects are telling. It's, it's wild. How did Noah's brain work? For most of his artistic career, Noah tried to use art to solve what he viewed as the inherent problem of the central city. But when he moved out here to the desert, there was more space and more time to think outside of those quote unquote problems. It was a place where his mind could wander and he had the space to build. What have we thought about Noah's museum as the embodiment of a dream? Of what it looks like when Black folks have space, time, and resources to build art for themselves outside of the pressures of the art world. In the artist's statement for his outdoor museum, he makes it clear to not look for any symbols or hidden meanings in his work. But in Noah's outdoor museum, I can't help but notice small pieces and fragments from Noah's life. He says, I do art for myself and others in that order. I guess I'm just left with like a lot of questions. And like questions maybe that there aren't answers to, I don't know. But uh, upon reflection, I'm not a hustler. I'm not used to hustling my work. And so as results, um, I chose to move to the desert. Now, I'm thinking about this episode, this one that you're listening to right now, as a type of orientation for the rest of the season. We are assembling our Black Futures Toolkit. You see, we are going on this journey through time, and I think to accomplish it, we have to think of time in ways that we're probably not used to. There's an artist group called Black Quantum Futurism, made up of artists Moore Mother and Rashida Phillips. And they often talk about blackness in the context of space and time. They have a book explaining some of their theories and ideas. In their research, they show some of the ways that black and Afro-Indigenous notions of time, non-linear notions of time, colored people time, actually share lots of similarities to quantum principles of physics. We're so used to time moving forward. It's a Western European understanding of linear time. But I think that Afrofuturism and characteristics of black life show us that time can move in a spiral. The past is constantly revealing itself to us in the present while simultaneously unfolding in the future. I think we have to attune ourselves to all the ways the past constantly presses upon the present, to all the ways we can learn from our ancestors and be in active conversation and collaboration with them, that we can take from Noah all that he knew and understood about democratizing art, but understand that he was in no way perfect. When I was listening back to some of Noah's oral histories, I found myself cringing at some of the misogynistic comments he made about women. I've been trying to hold these views in tension with all of his generosity he extended to his communities. 
I think about all the ways women like EJ and Ruth Wadi were builders and architects of black art communities. That being an artist today is still so difficult. That being an artist, let alone a black woman artist, 60 years ago feels almost unimaginable, but they still did it. To me, this is why Colleen Smith's work feels so important. Using Noah's museum as a backdrop for dreaming and building a utopia with black womanhood right at the center. Taking from the past and the present while simultaneously building a new future, a better future. I'd invite you to take these ideas of nonlinear time seriously. Hold on to them as you're listening, wherever you're listening. It is a building block for our visions of Black futurity. And we'll be coming back to these ideas in future episodes, like in our next episode with Bay Area artist Sage Stargate. Thank you for listening to episode two of Raw Material, Visions of Black Futurity. This podcast is a production of SFMOMA. This episode was written, produced, and sound designed by me, Babette Thomas, with production help from Maisa Plant-Graham, Erica Gangsi, Santino Gonzalez, Liza Yeager, Sam Leeds, and Kevin Carr. The music you heard in this episode is from the incredible Santino Gonzalez and the illustrious Georgia Ann Muldrow, performing as G.O.T., a name given to her by Miss Alice Coltrane herself. Be sure to check out her music wherever you listen. And thank you to the Center for Oral History Research, Charles E. Young Research Library at UCLA for the archival clips of Noah Purifoy. We'll be back in two weeks with episode three. I'll see you then. Thank you.